0: So 1 Thessalonians 1, and we're going to read 1 through the first part of 5. Um, It starts, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Maybe be seated. Good morning, Echo Church. Uh, if we've not met before, I'm uh, Chris Lewis. I pastor Foothill Church, and uh, J.D. was on staff with us for a while before he planted here, and so we're just really. Delighted that we can continue to partner like this. JD preached for me last week, and uh, always love having JD. As you know, he's an amazing preacher and teacher, and so. Uh, but it's just a joy uh, for me to be here with you this morning. All right, so we're going to look at First Thessalonians chapter uh, one, verses one through five today, and let's just really just ask a question: What what is a church? What do we mean when we say we're a church? Echo Church, you've been here for a few months now, and Foothill Church, we've been around for a while, but what do we mean we say we're, we're a church? I think it's a fair question, right? Because um, there's lots of places that will call themselves church, right? Now, we've got the standard. We have Baptist churches. We have Methodist churches. We have Pentecostal churches. We have things like that, but, but there's also uh, other ones, right? Like there'll be what we all know very famously, the Church of Scientology, Um, is it a church? Uh, There are some even more bizarre ones. There's a church out there that's actually, you don't have to, you can Google this later to verify that I'm going to tell you it's right. There's the uh, the church of the mystic mind or the church, believe it or not, of the Jedi order. Um, There is something out there. I'm not kidding you when I tell you there is a church of the flying spaghetti monster. I have no idea what that is. Uh, I don't care really to know, but so what is it? Do you just... Do you just take the word church, plop it onto a name uh, of something, and that turns you into a church, voila? I think it's a really fair question for us to ask. And what does the Bible have to say about that? Now, J.D., I know he, he walked you through part of Thessalonians last week, and one of the things he told you is this is a really young church. You are Echo Church. So is the church in Thessalonica. Uh, perhaps some scholars, a few weeks, a few months. I mean, we're talking about a baby church where Paul came in, and what happens? Paul comes in, and and we read in Acts chapter 17 that he preaches for three weeks on uh, the Sabbath, and then he is sort of run out of town. And so in those three weeks, he's like, I planted a church. Like, I don't think anybody in modern church planting would go, yeah, you planted a church. Right? If J.D. preached here for three weeks and then ran on and came to me and said, Chris, we planted a church in China," I'd be like, dude, you got to go back, right? Like, that doesn't work that way, right? But Paul does this. And what's remarkable about Paul and what's remarkable about the way he talks is listen to him. What would you expect from a church that is anywhere between a few weeks and a few months old? Now I'm talking about now, many of you in this room have a background. You have some spiritual resource to draw from. Some of you grew up in the church, but what if you had never heard the name Jesus until three weeks ago, until a month ago, until two months ago? That's the kind of church we're talking about. And Paul begins to describe for us. In fact, listen to John Stott. I love love this. He says, the church of the Thessalonians is only a few months old. So a few months, a few weeks, whatever. But its members are newborn Christians, freshly converted from either Judaism or paganism. Their Christian convictions have been newly acquired. Their moral standards have been recently adopted. And they are being sorely tested by persecution. You would expect it to be a very wobbly church in a very precarious condition. But no, Paul is confident about it because he knows it is God's church and because he has confidence in it in God. So now watch what Paul does. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of flush out what I think are four characteristics of a biblical New Testament church that you'll find here in, in 1 Thessalonians verses 1, 1, 1 to 5. Okay, So, so we'll, we'll walk through this and it tells us something about the nature of a true church. This is not all the Bible has to say about what a church is, but I think this is a great place to begin. We think, what, what does it look like for a young church, Echo, To be the church of Jesus Christ. So I want you to just show you a few things. Number one, notice he says the church is a community that lives in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse one with me again. Paul Savannah's Timothy uh, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul doesn't just throw around words right i mean this is this is paul under the inspiration and saying i recognize you as having a certain spiritual location You are in God the Father. You are in uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen to me, church. This is a matter of first importance. When it comes to whether you are a biblical church, whether it comes to whether you are a Christian, this is a matter of first importance. Are you in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ? Your location is everything. Like, like it, it's, it's everything about you. And so he looks and says, here's what I recognize about you. And this is incredible. Here's a few weeks, a few months old. And Paul says, I see, I know that where you live is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me give you a really basic definition of the church. And again, I'm not saying this represents the whole of, of the New Testament. But I, I think it's, we could define a church this way. A church is a gathering or collection of people who believe in Christ, have submitted to his lordship, and walk in community with one another. So he looks and says, this is, this is what's happening. You, that, that means that you are united by faith in Christ, to Christ, right? Your, your, your union with Jesus, your union with God in Christ is absolutely important. So, so any group can call itself a church, can't they? We live in a free country. Uh, legally, you just have to meet certain requirements. You can get your 501c3, Right? what constitutes a church? Like fundamentally, is it because we are recognized by the state? You may or may not be. Is it because you have your your tax exemption status? You may or may not. Is it because we're in a building? You might, you might not. But from the New Testament perspective, here it is. It must be that you are United to God in Christ. You are hidden with Christ in God, Paul's going to say elsewhere. You are are in in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. you You are not united to Him apart from faith in His work on your behalf, trusting that what Christ has done, what He's accomplished in His perfect life, His perfect death, His resurrection is all that's necessary to satisfy the, the, the righteous requirements of God. So now by faith, you put your faith in Him, and, and now you, you live in a different way. We'll see this in a moment. You're dead to your old self. You're, you're living to your new self. Paul says, I look at this and say, here here is a group and this is your story. Listen to me, Echo Church, that's your story. If you are genuinely a believer, then everybody in here who is genuinely in Christ would say, that's my story. This is what happened to me. I was outside of Christ. I'm now in Christ. I was lost, I'm found. I was in darkness, I'm in light, right? All because of what he's done. I've died and now I live. I'm united to Christ. See, now, this is amazing. Paul genuinely believes this about this few week old church. That's incredible. Now, what, 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 maybe we could ask, what gives Paul that kind of confidence? Well, let's look at verses two and three because I'd suggest to you that the second thing we could say is a church is a community that demonstrates the fruit of God's grace. Look at verse two just first. He says, we give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Now, let me stop there just for a moment. I I, I want you to notice something. Paul Paul goes, this is a in fact, if I could just sort of summarize the book of Thessalonians. Paul, is, is he was worried. He left them in a hurry. You remember this? And in Acts chapter 17, he has to, he has to get out of town. And, and so he looks back and he's kind of concerned. They're being persecuted. He left them in a hostile environment. He's wondering how they're doing. He sends Timothy. Timothy comes back and reports to him. Man, you wouldn't believe it, Paul. They're, they're going. like They're thriving. Like God is on the move, right, among them. And Paul Paul looks and says, man, I'm, I'm so thankful. This is a letter of just massive encouragement. I mean, over and over, Paul just wants to encourage him. Keep going, keep going, keep pressing, keep following Jesus. But I want you to notice something. Paul does something that I'm convinced is particularly Christian. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you. Now, what do I mean by being particularly Christian about that? I could say to J.D., J.D., man, I'm thankful for you, buddy. No, that's good, right? That's a, that's a nice, that's a great compliment. That's, that's, and, I, and it's really true, I am. But a Christian, a distinctively Christian way of me saying and, and, and articulating my thankfulness for J.D. or Randy or Juan or whoever is to simply say, I thank God for you. Because what does a Christian recognize? A Christian recognizes that if I see the fruit of obedience, if I see J.D. pursuing Jesus, if I see him walking in obedience, if I see these the fruits of the Spirit, I recognize that's not because J.D. pulled himself up by the bootstraps, tried harder, and that's why he's doing what he's doing. It's because I say, can say, the grace of God is at work with you, and the first cause of that is what? It's God, it's Jesus. It's, it's the work of the Spirit in him. We give thanks to God for you. And then he tells us why. There are some some specific things that I see. What does he say? Verse 3, Remembering before God our Father your work of faith, your labor of love, steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus. Now, notice that triad might sound familiar to you, faith, hope, love, except he does it as what? Faith, love, hope. Uh, Some scholars believe this is perhaps one of Paul's earliest letters. This might be the first time he actually came up with that sort of triumvirate, right? This kind of a triad of Christian virtues. And Paul says, man, I'm thankful I see these things. What does he see? Now, in the ESV that we're reading from, the English Standard Version, it just says what? Work of faith. uh, 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 labor of love, steadfastness of hope. That of is a, is a, is a grammatical term, a word called a genitive. And, and if you study the grammar of Greek, uh, it, 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 you know, when we just hear of, we're kind of like, what does that mean? The NIV, some of you might have the NIV, is actually pretty helpful at this point because it's going to take that word of and it's going to flesh out what really is the meaning of that of. And it's going to say that, that, that it's a work produced by faith, a labor prompted by love, an endurance inspired by hope. That's the idea behind that little word of, that these virtues come from something, right? It's not, it's not, I have the virtues and, 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 and then I, I get, or I, I do these things and get the virtues. It's that God, God gives me these virtues and it produces something. That's crucially important. Now, now notice something about this. Genuine faith. We could say it this way: produces work, love prompts labor, hope fuels endurance, labor, work, endurance. Like these are really sweaty words, aren't they? This is hard. This is this is um. We, we, we can never believe that what Christianity will do is make us lazy. In fact, what it will do is produce something. It'll produce a labor that is coming out of love. It'll produce a kind of hope, right, that, 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 comes, that, that, that produces endurance, right? So I endure because I hope. I, I labor because I'm loved and love. I, I work because I have faith. This is so important, um, again, this just won't give way to any kind of um, a Christianity that sort of rests on our laurels and, and doesn't think we have to, to, to do anything, right? I mean, what Paul's saying here is, no, there is, a, there is a, an ethic. There's a work ethic, we might say, I mean, we're going to see this where, where Paul says to Timothy, second or uh, uh, 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best, Timothy, to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed. You no, know, he's talking about that's certainly in the context of Timothy preaching and studying hard, but that certainly applies to all of the Christian life, that we ought to be workers. We ought to be able to go to work tomorrow, and what our bosses ought to be able to say is, man, I, I wish I had 10 of you. I wish I had 20 of you. Not, man, you don't pull your weight. We we work. He says to the Colossians, listen, he says this to slaves and free people, married and unmarried, everybody. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. You're serving the Lord Christ. This is what we got to be known for, Christian. Now, Now listen to me. In other words, what Paul's saying is I I look at you and one of the reasons I'm so excited and one of the reasons I can say I see that that you are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ because I see this fruit. See, see Paul's going, you know… Um, he's not excited, Paul's not excited because he went to Thessalonica, got to go down to the amphitheater, put signs up about a crusade, had thousands of people join a crusade, and then when he gave an altar call, a bunch of people came forward and went, yes, now I know. No, he looks and says, what makes me excited is I see actual fruit. I see a labor. I see an endurance I see a hope, right? I see these things. I see work being produced. These people are different. If you ask Paul, Paul, how do you know this is a church that's in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ? How do you know that these people are actually Christian? He would say because the invisible has become visible. The intangible has become tangible. I can actually look at their lives and see a difference. Listen, again, this is the story. You you could look around the room, man. I mean, I know some of your stories. If you heard JD's testimony, what God, what God brought him from to where he is. By the way, that's not just because JD was. That's my testimony. I was saved when I was a kid, but it doesn't mean there was anything less rank about me. I mean, that's Randy's testimony. I love Randy. You're wearing that "But God" shirt, right? If it weren't for God, look at how God has changed Randy. Look at how God has actually changed Juan. Look at, look at around this place and look at how you see the fruit of actual faith in, in people's lives. Listen, this is the biblical evidence of whether somebody is a Christian, right? It's not that I checked a box. I see this every week at Foothill. It's not because you walked down an aisle. It's not because you raised a hand. It's because ultimately you put your faith in Jesus Christ and it produced something. Um, this is really massive. Because I think we have a lot of people in our world that are assuming So I'm not trying to be... Uh, man, man I, 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 don't, I don't know all your stories. Let me just say this. I, I just can't think of anything worse than believing I was a Christian and I'm not. I just, I can't imagine anything more horrific than coming to stand before God someday and Him saying, depart from me, I never knew you. And me going, but wait, God, I thought, I thought I was in because I said a prayer, walked an aisle. I did, I checked the right boxes, but did you see the fruit, the evidence in your life? Jesus tells a parable about this. The four soils, right? He goes out and scatters the seed and some land on the path. And, and, and the whole idea behind that is not that you know, one in four people are saved when you hear the gospel or you know, whatever. The, the idea behind those four soils is to say, look, there's one. There's one of that grouping that actually produces fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. There will be fruitful, spirit wrought, Evidence in your life if you're a Christian. There will be fruitful, spirit wrought, fruitful evidence if this is actually a New Testament church. And it is. The church is a community that demonstrates the fruit of God's grace. You can see it. People are being changed, they're being baptized. Like things are happening, people are following Jesus. That's the second thing. The third thing is a church is a community loved and chosen by God. Now look at verse four. He says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Now, now let me let me just sort of look at your text with me for a second. Paul, Paul, used that word four. I think he's telling us not just. What follows tells us that you're, that you're actually chosen and, and loved by God. What, what comes before? Like, with the, these, these are evidences before, here's some evidences afterwards. But notice in the middle, he says, all these point to the fact that you are loved by, you are chosen by God. Now, I want to talk about this for a moment. Um, because we stumble here upon a doctrine that causes lots of people to bristle. And that doctrine, of course, is the doctrine of election and predestination, right? The church has been divided for centuries over this doctrine. Now, let me ask you something. Look at it with me again. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you. Do you think Paul wrote that down in his letter to be a point of controversy or comfort? Like, there's no question. That what Paul wanted to do is wrap them up in a warm blanket of God's sovereignty and go, this is who you are. I heard Russ Moore, he's a theologian, uh, say a few years ago, he said, "Um, uh, Christians, we, we, and I'm paraphrasing now, Christians have this problem of being comforted by things that should disturb us and disturbed by things that should comfort us. And he said, you know, for example, like let's take, let's take the Sermon on the Mount, Uh, You know, the Beatitudes. Like, Beatitudes are things we, we, like, make paintings of them. Like, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for they shall see God. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. And we think these are these really beautiful Christian sentiments that deserve pastel watercolors. Right? When when those... Folks, when you understand what Jesus is doing, this is a manifesto of the kingdom. This is him saying, here's what it looks like for you to be a member of the kingdom. And you look at that and go, wait a second, I don't hunger and thirst after righteousness the way I am. I, the way I should. I, I don't I'm not I don't feel poor in spirit. I don't look and see the poverty of my own spirit. I think I'm awesome. And I don't see that and I can't see it. And the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is to drive you to your knees and say, there's no way I could ever live this out. That's supposed to disturb you, not comfort you. And the doctrine of election, of predestination was never meant to disturb you. It was meant to comfort you. Ever thought about this? See, if you ask, I mean, listen, by the way, look at it. Who's doing the loving, class? (laughs) God. Who's doing the choosing? God. And Paul says, man, this is such a comforting thought. And if you were to say to God, God, why? Why would you choose me? God, why do you love me? I do? Just because I do. Okay, but but why, right? (laughs) There has to be something in me that you love. There's got to be something. Chris, I just love you. That's crazy. See, and when we ask why, I think this is the most important question we'll ever ask. Because when we get to the end of that and realize God saw nothing in JD or Randy or Juan or me or any of you in here, He He, he just said, I just want to love you. Then I realize I can't do anything to lose that love. And men, that doesn't make me arrogant. Ah, you know, God loves me. Nothing, I, nothing, I, I can't do anything about that. I, can, I mean, he just loves me and I can walk around and do nothing, you know, just, just live my Christian life. No, it drops you to your knees and worship. Why? Me, God. Ephesians 1, in love, he predestined us. I mean, over and over you sees the, see this in scripture. <laughs> Paul talks about in, in, in the, the fact that he, you know, before, listen, if he says, in love, you protest in Ephesians chapter 1, before the foundations of the world, that means before I did, you did anything, good or bad, God decided, I didn't look down the corridors of history, would Chris turn out to be an awesome guy, would JD become a pastor, okay, therefore I'll save him. No, I just decided that I'm going to set my love and my affection upon them for the praise of my glorious grace. But Paul's going to say in in what? Romans chapter 9, when Rebecca had conceived children through one man, our forefather Isaac, though the children were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. chose Jacob. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, we read this powerful, God's going to say, man, it wasn't because of you. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set His love on you and chose you, for you were fewest of all people, but it is because the Lord loved you. So I tell you, this is This is supposed to be this this really comforting thing. Listen, God doesn't love you or me or anybody because we're lovely. He loves us because He wants to love us. He loves us because He wants to set... His hand of affection upon us. Now listen, there's some people that say, well, see, you people that talk like that, well, then what's the point of going out and evangelizing? And I'm not gonna get into the weeds on this other than to say, like, in other words, it negates the work of evangelism. That can't possibly be true because we just read in verse four that it causes, three, that it causes all kinds of labor, all kinds of work, especially kingdom work, that it will motivate you. I want other people to know the love of God the way I know it. I'll never do that. They better not do that, or your theology is whacked. Because God says, I I, man, no, the, I, "I, I chose you. I loved you. See, the primary, the first cause of salvation is what? It's God. Every time, it's God church is a community loved and chosen by God. Then finally, the church is a community marked by gospel power and results. You see that? Verse 5, okay, because the gospel came to you not only in word but also in power, the Holy Spirit with full conviction, it's marked by power, it's marked by results. Paul looks back on his short tenor, ten, tenure in, in Thessalonica and says, man, here's how we knew that the, 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 this was real. He says, one of the other, other evidences was we saw what happened in you, but we also saw what happened with us. The gospel was preached and it came in power and it came in spirit and it came with f- full conviction. In other words, Paul stands back and really does what he says will happen in Romans chapter one, right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus. Christ because it is the power of God for salvation. And it says, I just preached the Word of God. I stood back, if you will, and watched God move powerfully. Now, what what do you think that looked like, I wonder? Turn, Turn back with me if you want to just for a second and just listen to Paul describe maybe something similar happened in Corinth. And Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, listen to this, He says, and when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified and I was with you in weakness and fear and trembling and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God look I just came and all I had I was I was freaked out right I didn't know what to say it was, I was trembling how, how fear do you have to be to be trembling? How much stammering was Paul doing? And yet he says, Man, what happened was God unleashed the power of the gospel and it saved people. It came with power and the Spirit and with full conviction. And notice, by the way, it starts with the gospel, right? Paul goes, it all starts with the preaching of the gospel. See, right? People must hear the gospel. If you're a Christian today, it's because somewhere, someone, somehow you heard the gospel. And by the way, I bet it wasn't a perfect presentation of the gospel. We're freaked out about this, right? If I share my faith, man, I, you know what? Yeah, you got to do as best you know how. But how many of us have been saved by somebody not preaching a perfect gospel? All kinds of people. Because it's not about right. Yeah, there's some things we got to know. We got to know that there's there's repentance for my sin and there's faith in Jesus. I mean, John's just going to say, you know, I wrote these things. You may believe that Jesus is the Christ, Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. Oh, really, John? It's that easy. Is there nothing else that you would have to say? Of course there is. But don't don't be held back from gossiping, from speaking the gospel because you're afraid you don't get your word choices just right. In the end, this this is the power, God unleashing the gospel, right? See, if you're a Christian somewhere, you heard the gospel and you were saved by it. Um, my friend Jared Wilson says that what we win them with is what we win them to. If we win people with laser, you know, and light shows and fog machines, then next week they want to see more lasers and light shows and fog machines and lions in cages and pastors coming in, you know, uh, as supermen on a wire or whatever it is, right? But man, if they're saved with the gospel... If this is the power of God for salvation, then they simply crave, I want to hear more about that. Will you please tell me that again? Tell me that again. Remind me that again. Tell me but God again about what He's done. So, so look, now, now He says, so it starts with the gospel. But Notice this. He says, how did the gospel come to them? He says, it came to you not, um, verse 5, not only in word. Now, now, here's a question. Did it come with words? And the answer is yes, right? Paul says, not only words, but it came with words. Let me, let me say something about this. The gospel always comes with words. It is words that, that are the wings of the gospel, we might say. It's, it's how the gospel comes to you and me. There is no gospel without words. So this idea that's sort of popular of it preach the gospel and if absolutely necessary use words is nonsense. You must use words. Jesus used words. If the idea is that somehow people can see my good works... I go out and I'm, you know, I'm a doctor and I go to the mission field and I just, I go and I use my, my medical profession to try and, and bring healing to people and then I walk away not saying anything about Jesus, not saying anything about eternal forgiveness, none of those things. They're just as lost as when I came. I've never heard of anybody saying, wow, you're, you came all the way from the United States to Africa to minister to us. That must mean Jesus is your Lord and I want to follow him. no. Jesus opened his mouth. Jesus was the greatest miracle worker ever, right? And he still said, we got to move to the different town because I came to preach and not just do miracles, right? This is why I came to preach, why I came was to to preach among people. So, So we have to use words. It is, it is words, right? That's why Paul's again, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, preaching the gospel, it's the power of God for salvation for all who believe what I say to them, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Okay, but it's not mere words, is it? You know, it's possible for me or JD or anybody to stand up here and for what we say to be mere words, to just go, I'm I'm saying to you, Scripture, I'm doing all this, and yet it falls flat because it doesn't come with the Spirit's power. Let me tell you something about your pastor. I promise you this is J.D.'s testimony. He's terrified every time he comes up here, (laughs) right? Like, I'm about to preach to people, and I got nothing. If the Spirit doesn't blow on this, this is mere words. I'm just desperate for you, God. Paul says, we came to Thessalonica, and I didn't come to you with mere words. I came with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, right? I came to you with power, the Holy Spirit, with conviction. And I preached the gospel, and because the Spirit was in it, you listened, you believed. This is, look at this is a mark that when the gospel is preached, people are saved. Jesus comes in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 9. He says to to Matthew, He just says, follow me. And Matthew says, essentially, I laid down my stuff and I followed Him. What kind of power is that? I'm willing to leave behind everything. I'm willing to turn my back on my tax-collecting ways and follow after Jesus. That's power. That's a picture of your salvation. This is God's call to you in darkness and saying, Come to the light. And you come. The Word and the Spirit. Listen, be really careful. Like there are some, you'd look at some churches and go, Man, they're Word churches, they're heady, doctrinal. Theological, and there's church we say, and there's spirit churches. They're emotional. They're crazy, right? <laughs> I'm kidding, right? But now, what happens? What happens? We tend to separate these worlds. Careful. They were never meant to be separated like that. I came with the gospel. I came with it. Came with power. The Holy Spirit with conviction. Let let me quote John Stott one more time. I love this. He says, the Word of God is the Spirit's sword. The Spirit without the Word is weaponless. The Word without the Spirit is powerless. Amen. We need, oh, praise God that you hear the Word here every week. Seriously, I'm so thrilled at that. But what you need, what you should be praying for your pastor, what you should be praying every week is, God, I pray that when J.D. steps in this pulpit, that what he will be anointed, like, like Martin Lloyd-Jones used to talk about, about this unction, this, this power in the preaching of the Word of God. <laughs> Can I just take an aside here? One of my favorite stories about Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, he was asked one day, to preach in front of the Queen of England, and he agreed that he would do it. She could come see him preach the Word of God, and uh, this was actually told me by his grandson, and, and he said, I was asking him, like, he he was a spirit guy. Yeah, how, how, like, tell me how, what that looked like. He said he, he genuinely believed in the power of the Spirit and the preaching of the Word of God, and so the story goes. He said that that, he, that that the queen's emissary, whatever this person is called, came to Martin lloyd Jones, and he was a preacher in the in the 1940s and 50s, 30s, 40s, 50s. If you don't know that, and he in England came to him and said, "said um, Dr. Jones, you you have 12 minutes to preach before the queen." Now, if you were him and that was your opportunity, you'd be like oh, oh. most people, would be like, "Oh, okay, I'm gonna." I'm going to make sure I'm really good about this. I get an opportunity to preach the queen. Dr. Jones said, "Uh, that's not how this works. He's like, what do you mean? Um, I preach as long as the Spirit of God wants me to preach. I don't preach any longer. I don't preach any shorter. So I'm not shorting this for the queen. The guy was like, but wait, you only have 12 minutes. No, I don't. And he said, you mean you don't want to preach to the Queen of England. She said, you, He said, you mean the Queen of England doesn't want to hear the Word of God? That's a conviction, right? That when the Word of God is preached, the voice of God is heard. So, so church... We don't preach with mere with mere words. We preach with power. Okay, so so let me let me end with this, and I'll, I'll be done. Um, like how how can we evaluate? Maybe you're new. Maybe you're new to this church. And let me just kind of maybe maybe you, you've seen. Here's some of the marks that you ought to see. But let, let me give you kind of some some marks of what I think are like. Um, uh, 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 marks of, of genuinely authentic biblical churches. Okay, now you all know of nine marks. I'm not trying to imitate that at all. In fact, it was helped by um, a guy named Richard Phillips as I did this, but, but, um, let me just walk through these. I'm going, to, I'm going to be brief here. So you can take these down if you want to write these down. I think this is helpful. I think this is for you. Listen, I, as I did these, I preached this sermon a few weeks ago at Foothill, just full disclosure. And and I I, I remember thinking, God, I, I, I want these to be true of Foothill. And as you think about echo, I, you want these to be true, true of echo, Okay. Let's just walk through these. Number one, is the Word of God taught plainly from the pulpit and received earnestly by God's people? Here's what I know. I know this about Echo Church. The Word of God is taught from the pulpit. The question is, is it received earnestly? That's your question. Are you eager? Are you hungry? Do you walk in and say, this is my milk and meat. I have to have this. I can't live my Christian life without it. Number two is evangelism and spiritual growth based on God's Word instead of popular methods and techniques. You know what I love about your pastor, J.D.? I've told him this to his face. He is one of the most insatiable, amazing, um, evangelistic disciple-makers I've ever known. And he doesn't try to borrow some technique. Some of you have been discipled directly by J.D. You know what he does. He sits down with you and he opens the Word of God. Let's do this together, right? There it is. Is evangelism and spiritual growth at Echo Church based on God's Word instead of popular methods? Number three, is there evidence of the Spirit's power working in lives through the Word? Are people being brought to conviction? Are people repenting of sin? Are people walking away from sinful lifestyles? Number four, have long cherished errors yielded place to scriptural truth, however acceptable these errors are to the surrounding culture? Um, You guys have only been in existence a few months, so you don't really have long cherished errors as a church, do you? But let me ask you something personally. Has the Bible ever changed your mind about something? No matter what the culture is saying about it, you look and say, man, this is not popular. It's not going to make me more friends in the culture, but this is in the Bible. I see it. I believe it. I think that'll mark a New Testament church. Number five, is the Spirit of God helping us battle sin and motivate service by bringing Bible verses to mind? Like, seriously. Seriously. Like, like, you know what? That reminds me. That reminds me of this or that psalm. I'm not saying you can quote chapter and verse. Maybe you can. Maybe you can't. But there's a sense in which you're growing in your knowledge of the Word of God, and because of that, you're able to battle sin. It motivates you for service because you know the Word of God. The question is, do you know the Word of God? Are you growing in that? Are you in mining God's word? Are you you saying, man, I need to know more of this? I need to learn how to do this so that that I can grow in that. Number six, are people working out their faith and learning to walk in more and more obedience to Christ? This This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm working out my faith. I'm learning. I'm I'm becoming more obedient, not less obedient, not more licentious, not how close to the line. No, man, I just want to follow Jesus as radically and hard as I can. Number seven, are people laboring in love by sacrificing time and talent and treasure for one another and for the kingdom of Christ? Are you doing that? Like, look, I don't know all of you, but I know there's tons of needs at Echo Church. Do you come and warm a seat and go home, or do you sacrifice your time? Say, J.D., say to uh, other leaders around here, what can I do? How? Can I? I mean, I'm motivated because the Spirit of God. This is a gospel impulse of somebody who has been changed by the Spirit. And then number eight, are people willing to endure suffering and persecution and disfavor with the culture because of their greater hope in Jesus Christ and His promises? Ultimately, is that how you look at it? That this light and momentary affliction is not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to the sons of God? That while the creation groans, I look and say, man, I eagerly await for that day when Jesus Christ will come when He's my hope, so, so I can make it through the persecution, I can make it through the suffering, I can make it through the circumstances, that doesn't cause me to walk away from my faith. That, that, that anchors me even further knowing that really my only, my greatest hope is the return and being forever with Jesus Christ. That's the mark. These are, these are, these are some of the marks that Scripture gives us. Here's what we have in First Thessalonians chapter 1. It's a community that lives in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a community that demonstrates the fruit of God's grace. It's a community loved and chosen by God, and it's a church community marked by gospel power and results. Echo, that's my prayer for me, for you individually, and for you and us corporately. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for Your Word, and thank You for the ways that You challenge us and equip us and rebuke us. and Train us in righteousness through Your Word. So I pray today, Echo Church would be trained to pursue fully uh, Jesus Christ, to pursue fully what it means to be a church that is on mission for the cause of the kingdom and for the ultimate glory of Jesus and the joy of all people. And we ask this in Jesus' name.